Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning. We pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would instruct us. Uh, But more than anything else, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would order our hearts this morning, that we might be men and women that truly live for you, but live for you in a right way. And we ask this in your name and for your glory, and all God's people said. I want to look at the psalm under three headings, the house, the heartland, the home, the house, the heartland, the home, and I see through New Testament eyes the house meaning the house of the Lord, the church, the heartland meaning our place of residence, and by home I mean our family unit. This psalm highlights the three things that really matter to God and three things that ought to matter to us. But what is interesting in the psalm is it doesn't just highlight what is important to God. It doesn't just teach us about what is important, but it teaches us how to love the things that are important to God in right ways and right proportions. This psalm is one of 15 psalms that are described as a psalm of ascent. These were psalms that were sung as the people of God would converge on Jerusalem. As they would ascend the hill to the temple, uh, these songs were sung. These songs were written to help the people of God anticipate the grand celebration that was about to take place. But they were also written to prepare each person for the events that were about to transpire. So they were written to help them anticipate, but they were written to help them prepare. And these Psalms, we're looking at two of them over our times, Psalm 122 yesterday, Psalm 127 today, are Psalms that are a gift to us because they help us to focus on what really matters, to help focus on what is really important. Because if we focus in the wrong place, it will result in a wrong vision, that will result in us moving in a wrong direction. And as we gather nationally here, God is saying, I want you to have a right view of things, a right vision that will cause you to walk in a right direction. Let's begin with the house. So it's the house, the heartland, the home. Let's begin with the house. The house of the Lord. If there was ever a group of people who care about the house of the Lord, surely it's the one looking at me this morning. I mean, let's think about this. Who gives up their Saturday to be trained and equipped to be better leaders in the church? Who does that in the United Kingdom? How many groups like this exist today in this nation? You're in the 0.001 percentile. Who does this? And then let's just up the ante. Who pays to give up a Saturday in order to be trained about the church? You are in the 0.0001 percentile. And then who not only attends an event on a Saturday, pays to attend an event on a Saturday, but is a part of a movement that is interested in planting and strengthening churches around the world. It's not just that you are getting trained, but you are part of a brother and a sisterhood that define their togetherness as planting and strengthening churches. This is like a seemingly singular focus. This is a group of people that really care about the church of Jesus Christ. They not only want to plant these babies, but they want to strengthen these babies. This is the thing that they seem solely interested in. Who is as crazy as that? We are as crazy as that. And one of the reasons why I was so looking forward to today was because I'm going to be in a group of people that are as crazy as I am about the church of Jesus Christ. I loved it. I was looking so forward to it. But there's not a lot of us out there, but I knew that today I was going to be with a group of people that don't just like are mildly interested. I mean, are passionate, are really excited about the church of Jesus Christ. And that really excited me. 
Now the question we need to ask, because we're like so crazy, like whenever you're in the 0.0000001 percentile, you need to ask yourself is, am I crazy or is this right? Have I just got this like kind of weird, weird interest that somebody needs to just like, Steve, seriously, can you just become more mainstream here? Like are we, are, are, are we really crazy or are we biblically crazy? That's a good question to ask. That's a good question to ask. And I've got good news. We are not crazy, crazy. We're just biblically crazy. Because when we crack open the Bible, we just see it's not just us that's crazy about the church. We actually find God is really crazy about the church. Let's just like hover over Ephesians for a bit. Let's think about Ephesians 1, where we read Ephesians 1 and we see that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning for his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Friends, it just doesn't get better, bigger than this. This is, this is total, total authority for the church. Jesus ruling and reigning. And when you read it, you think, he must be ruling and reigning for his glory. But that isn't what is written in Ephesians 1. He's ruling and reigning for the church. Complete authority for the church, which is his body. Complete identification with the church. How could Jesus say anything more identificationary than that this organization is his actual body, his body which fills everything in every way. Oh, let's think about Ephesians 2, that Christ has come and through his physical death on the cross, he has broken the dividing walls to create this new community in which he dwells by his spirit. He's created this new society, this new humanity, this new community that Groups that were previously divided, now united together. It's a beautiful thing. Or, or, or think about Ephesians 3. It is now through the church that the manifold wisdom of God, now through the church, just one instrument, God is going to do something and it's going to be through the church. What is it? It is now through the church that the manifold wisdom of God be displayed. God's chosen the church to display His manifold wisdom. Where? to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The Apostle Paul, not some whack job, the Apostle Paul says that it's God's intention now through the church that the manifold wisdom of God be displayed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There is something about when the church of Jesus Christ gathers that God gets intergalactic glory. You say to me, Stephen, what does that mean? I have no idea, but that is what is in the Bible. When we gather, it's not just that people around would say, wow, isn't that a really fantastic church? It's great when our local press notice us. But when we gather together, the Apostle Paul says that God gets intergalactic glory. Or, or think about Ephesians 4. We're told that, that Christ ascends. I mean, like, surely this is a big deal, like life, death resurrection, now ascension. This, this must be a really big deal. What happens? Does he just get this massive applause when he gets into heaven? Well done, Jesus. No, he ascends in order to give gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach the point of maturity. The ascended Christ, when he gets there, is interested about distributing gifts to the church so the church may be built up. Or what about Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives. How? How? What's the measure? Give, give, give me the measure of the love. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Friends, we are not crazy crazy. We are biblically crazy. It, if you do a study in the book of Ephesians, it is hard to exaggerate the importance of the church. The church matters to God and it ought to matter to us. And yet, in the psalm, there is a warning. The church matters to God and it matters to us, and yet, here there is a warning. Here there is a caution, and the caution is this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. It is possible to be so into building the house of the Lord. It is possible to be so into laboring 
for the Lord that actually, ironically, our labor is in vain. Our work is futile. Our, our work is worthless. Our work is inconsequential. In vain you rise early and stay up late toiling. Hard work without any point ought to be a great concern to us. The idea that we would labor and work for something, but it would be meaningless, it would be inconsequential, ought to be a deep concern to us. The story is told that uh, in a German concentration camp during the Second World War, prisoners of war uh, were required to dig an enormous hole on one end of a concentration camp, and it took them months and months and months to dig this enormous uh, hole in the concentration camp. They weren't required simply just to dig the hole, but they were required to, to pack the dirt from digging the hole into bags, and then by hand they were required to carry these bags from one end uh, of the concentration camp right to the other side of the camp. And day after day and week after week and month after month, these prisoners of war had to work and work and at times working through the bleakest part of winter until the day finally arrived when they completed their, their task. After weeks and weeks and months of months of back-breaking work, the moment came where the final bag hit the pile on the other side of the concentration camp and the sense of relief and accomplishment flooded their soul. And yet, the moment at which that bag finally hit the pile, they were then informed that they needed to transport all the bags to the other side of the uh, concentration camp and fill the hole that they had been digging for months. An analysis of torture that had taken place in German concentration camps, the prisoners of war said that that act of meaningless work, purposeless work, was the most soul-destroying form of torture that they experienced. The sense that their labor was in vain was worse than the actual physical exertion that they were required to make. This concern ought to be a concern for all of us. It was a concern for the Apostle Paul in Galatians. He goes up to Jerusalem to check with those that were meant to be leaders to see if he was building correctly, that he wasn't running in vain. So as church leaders, how do we avoid running in vain? What, 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 what is the mechanism that we can do to ensure that we are not running in vain? Well, friends, I think it's possible to make a mistake at this point. We, we can think, whoa, 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 okay, unless the Lord builds the house the, the builders labor in vain. Okay, I get the message of Psalm 127. The message of Psalm 127 is obviously right that I need to down tools here. I, I, I don't need to be working because, because if, 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 you know, if I'm not working, then it's, it's like really clear that the Lord's building the house. This, this, this is a great verse. I'm really glad you came all the way from South Africa to tell us, like, seriously, just like chillax, trust God, let go and let God. That, 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 is that the message? message of Psalm 127. Well, listen to Derek Kidner. He writes the following. He says, while a contrast between fruitless toil and effortless enrichment is attractive, the opening verses are in effect, in, in fact, contrasting two attitudes to God rather than two attitudes to work. What we find in these opening verses in Psalm 127 isn't a comparison between whether you work or whether you don't, but rather there's a contrast in between attitudes to God. Are we dependent on God for the work that we do, or are we independent, just doing our own thing? The juxtapose here at the start of the psalm isn't between work or no work. And I know in a, in, in a group this size, there, there, there'll be some full-timers here. 
and, and, and the reason why there isn't fruitfulness in your church isn't because of some demonic onslaught that is happening in your town or village or city. It's just because you're lazy. You're not doing the work that you're meant to be doing. And this psalm isn't your get-out-of-jail card. Well, unless the Lord builds a house, you know, and unless He's building it, it's not going to happen. No, no, no. The juxtapose isn't between it's either work or no work. It's rather a psalm that is getting us to think about the work beneath the work. Why are we working? How are we working? How are we laboring? Friends, how have you arrived over this weekend? Have you arrived exhausted? Have you arrived frustrated? Have you arrived exhausted? And if you have, have you analyzed your exhaustion? Have you analyzed your exhaustion? Like if, if somebody came up to you during the break and said, hey, I can see you like you're really tired. Why are you really tired? Well, I don't think there's any of us in this room would say, you know, I'm really exhausted, and the reason why I'm exhausted is I'm just like even 150% because I'm wanting to build something by me, for me, and this is exhausting me. Like, nobody's going to say that, right? Like, even if we're doing it, I mean, this group of people are clever enough to fake it. We'd never be that brutally honest. Like, why are you so exhausted? Well, I'm trying to build an empire for my glory, and my empire isn't doing as well as I really hoped. I'm really committed to doing the the by me, for me, and it's not working out. I'm not getting the glory that I deserve. Like, none of us would say that. None of us would say that. But there is a second option that isn't as stark potentially as honest as that. The option B is I'm really exhausted because I'm building something for God, but it's by me. It's not by me for me, but it is by me for God. And because it's for God, It's really okay for me to be manically overworked in order to try and do this for God. And the shocker of Psalm 127 is that that option, this psalm calls laboring in vain. That's the glass of cold water in the face that this psalm gives. The place of by me for God is defined in this psalm as laboring in vain. The happy place that this psalm wants to get you to be in is that if you're involved in Christian leadership, the the heart motivation, the, the internal scaffolding in your life is it's by God for God. It's not by me, for me, nor is it by me, for God. It is by God, for God. Now, this doesn't mean that we do not work. We, 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 it, the call isn't for no work. The psalm speaks about labor. It speaks about toiling. It speaks about getting up earlier. It speaks about staying late. But our work is only ever successful because God is at work. God's work always precedes our work. Without God, our work isn't even possible. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. And friends, this isn't like some, like, we're really, we're really doing everything, but we're going to be super spiritual and saying, actually, it's God doing all of it. This isn't a false assessment. Let's just, let's just step back for a moment and think about this. Friends, if we do an, an honest evaluation, like I, I studied accountancy and auditing, okay, if, if you actually audit your church and give an honest assessment, valid, accurate, and complete assessment of your church, we would all have to acknowledge that it is only a supernatural God 
that is undergirding the reality of this church. Friends, let's just think about what was required for your church to exist. The fact that anybody's going to rock up tomorrow morning is an expression of a supernatural sovereign God. Because for your church to exist, it required Jesus Christ to leave the glories of heaven, to humble himself and become a man to resist all temptation, to say no to sin at every turn, to humble himself and become naked and and nailed to a cross, bearing a crown of thorns, becoming our sin bearer, receiving the punishment of God the Father. It required him to be raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. It required him to sovereignly elect people Uh, before the creation of the world, that they might be saved and rescued. It it requires him to to call them, to regenerate them, to, to, to justify them. If you think about all the things that needed to take place just for one person in your church to come to saving grace, and then for miraculous individuals after miraculous individuals to be connected together in a community, layer after layer after layer after layer, tells us that unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor in vain. It is an utter miracle. It is an utter miracle that your church exists. God is undergirding it all. That, that, that's just the hard facts in the cold light of day. And friends, Solomon models this because Solomon is writing the psalm, the psalm of ascent. What's ascent? They're going up the hill. Where are they going up to? They're going up to the temple. Who built the temple? Solomon built the temple. But Solomon doesn't have very many psalms, but one of the psalms he writes is, unless the Lord builds the house, its labor is labor in vain. It's like, you may think I built this, but I didn't. It was God. It was God who did that. Is, is that in your soul as a leader? At, at, at the deepest, most fundamental level, do you know that your local church is a miracle? It, it, it is something that God has brought into being. It's something that He has done. And friends, what happens is, as we go on, as we get better at leading, as our church grows, as it becomes more successful, we can so easily take the credit we, we, we can so easily overrate our strategic importance or the measure of our public gifts that's really helping this thing move forward. We make huge mistakes. Listen to what Benjamin Franklin wrote when he uh, delivered a speech at the convention of the forming of the Constitution of the United States in Philadelphia in 1787. I know this may be a sensitive speech to read in this nation, but I'm not trying to wind you up. Um, Listen to what he said. In the beginning of the contest with Britain, we were sensible of danger, and we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard, and they were graciously answered were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence. To that kind providence we owe this opportunity of consulting in peace of the means of establishing our future nation. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived a long time. Benjamin Franklin was 81 when he gave this speech. And the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sirs, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, They labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we we shall proceed in this political building with no better than the builders of Babel. Either we build in the house of the Lord, or we build in the tower of Babel. Either we're doing it in our own strength, for our own glory, 
or we acknowledge in that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Closer to home, the city of Edinburgh has the following motto, without the Lord, frustration. Without the Lord, frustration is the motto of the city of Edinburgh. And all of us as church leaders can testify to the reality of that, correct? Without the Lord, frustration. Friends, I want to ask you, who's building your church? You building your church? Or is God building your church? What are some of the signs that we're building the church rather than God building the church? First sign is we don't really pray very much. We rate our work more than we rate God's work. We don't pray very much. Secondly, our lives are characterized by anxiety, toil, and frustration. There's just a reality of drivenness that produces anxiety and toil and frustration. Hard work is our default mode. When something goes wrong, our first response isn't to seek God or for ask for God's assistance. Our first response is to work harder. When we do a year review and it hasn't gone as well as we hoped, uh, our first idea is let's work hard, let's do more, let's try harder. That will solve the problem. Evidence number four, you're struggling to sleep. You're struggling to sleep. The psalm itself says, the Lord grants sleep to those he loves. When you understand that God's ruling the universe, you can sleep even in the midst of the storm. Evidence number five, everything else in your life is a mess. You see, when you've got disordered priorities, the evidence of that is every other relationship in your life is in a place of disequilibrium. Everything else is a bit frayed. There's, there's no space for just normal responsibilities that we clearly see in God's Word. So I'm like really passionate about the church, but actually everything else in my life is a bit mess. My job, I'm not really doing my job well. My, my family's a little bit of a mess. My, my friends never get any time with me. My, my whole life is characterized by a disequilibrium. Evidence number six, lack of joy. Overworked people aren't normally happy people. You're a sad dog. <laughs> Seven, you are regressing in Christian character. You are getting less mature over time. You were more mature, you were more patient, you were more kind, you were more loving five years ago than you are now. You're actually getting worse. You're actually getting worse. Evidence number eight, you are impatient. You are impatient. Because your assumption is, I can execute this, I can do it, and I'm doing my bit. Why isn't this happening? I'm getting really frustrated. I know I'm doing my bit, so it must be my other staff members. It must be that they're not doing their bit. That must be the problem. I'm going to turn my guns on them. I'm going to get upset about, you know, with them. It's ev- it then becomes everybody else's fault. There's just a built-up frustration. Stephen, why? Stephen, why can <laughs> Stephen, Stephen, why do you describe this so well and so accurately? <laughs> Firstly, the house. Secondly, the heartland. Secondly, the heartland. Having highlighted the house, Solomon then highlights the city. In this case, it is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you remember, is the very epicenter of spirituality for uh, the Jewish people. When they are exiled uh, into Babylon, we read in Psalm 137, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So in the context of the psalm, this is Jerusalem, and this is the most valuable city on the the planet for the people of God at this point in salvation history. And yet to these people who consider this city the most treasured place on planet earth, as they ascend to the high point of the city, God just says, heads up. It's not just unless the Lord builds a house, it's builders labor in vain. It's unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the watchmen stand guard in vain. And there are two things that I want us to notice here. The first thing is we're not called just to have a heart for the church, but we are called to have a heart for our surrounds. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, serving Christ is geographical as much as it is theological. Now is the time to, dis- to rediscover the meaning of the local. Our work for Christ takes place geographically. The gospel is emphatically geographical. Places of names such as Nazareth and Samaria and Jerusalem are embedded in the gospel. God cares about the places that we live, and if God cares about it, we should care as well. Now, I think we're really good at this as a movement, but we need to continue on it. We need to own the local. We need to own the place that we live in. The place that you live in matters to God, and therefore it should matter to you. But the second thing that I want you to notice here is that the success of our region, the place where we live, is ultimately determined by God. Even the city of Jerusalem in this period of salvation history had no guarantees simply around human efforts. Simply the, 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 the God-fearing people doing all that they could to protect the city wasn't going to be enough. Their labors in looking after their city wasn't enough because unless the Lord watches over the city, those who watch over watch in vain. God is saying the success of your town or your city of the place of your residence is determined by God. And what we get to see in this psalm is that God chooses to open up a window that he is way more involved in the places that we live than we would ever, ever, ever dare to imagine. Maybe the most shocking demonstration of this is found in Jonah 4. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah's called to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go. He goes there. He ready, you know, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. They believe God. They call a fast. They cry out to God. God shows mercy and Jonah's really angry. It's like, I'm so ticked off. This is the very reason why I didn't want to go in the first place because I know that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew that you were going to forgive these people. (laughs) And then he goes up to the mountain to give God an opportunity to repent. (laughs) He goes up, he he, he wants, he gets to the high place. It's like, I've told you how mad I am. Now nuke the city. Now nuke the city. That's what he's doing. He's getting up there so the city would be destroyed, and he wants, to, he, wants to see, he wants to see the city destroyed. He wants to smell the smoldering Assyrians. That's our Jonah. But while he's up on the mountain, it gets hot. There's a bird wind that blows. There's, a, there's, there's, a, there's hot air that comes, and it gets really hot, and he gets really uncomfortable, get, get, gets kind of really upset about this. And God produces a vine that grows really quickly, and the grind the, the vine grows over him to give him shade. God provides some aircon. And Jonah goes from being really, really mad to really, really happy. He's like, cool, aircon, this is awesome, this is amazing. Comfort idol going there. Don't be too hard on Jonah. Um, he's got his aircon, but God doesn't just provide the vine, God provides a worm. The worm eats the vine, the vine perishes. And Jonah goes from being very, very happy to very, very mad. And God says to Jonah, do you have any right to be concerned about the vine? And he says, I do. I'm mad enough to die. God says to him, is it right that you're angry about this plant? It is, he says. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But verse 10, but the Lord said to him, you've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend or make it grow, it sprung up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not be concerned... For the great city of Nineveh, in whom there are more 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And friends, at one level we can read this and say, this shows God's concern for cities, which it does, God's, God's concern for this. But I just want to suggest to you that, that, that Jonah 4 verse 10 is one of the most radical verses in the whole of the Old Testament. Because God is saying to his prophet, you meant to reflect my heart. You meant to reflect my concerns, but you're concerned about your air conditioning. Should I not be concerned for the great city of Nineveh, which has 120,000 people? 
Friends, let's think about this. What was Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, which was the Israelites' arch enemies, the people that were looking to bring out the demise of Israel, not a nation state, but the only people of God on planet earth. And God says to his prophet, you're concerned about your air conditioning. Should I not, though you didn't tend or care for it, you're concerned about your plant, though you didn't tend and care for it, shouldn't I be concerned about Nineveh? What's God saying? He's saying, Jonah, you didn't tend and care for the plant, but you already freaked out and all concerned about the plant. I, inference, tended and cared for Nineveh, non-Jewish, arch enemy. I tended and cared for that city. It's got 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and it's got cattle as well, which isn't just about God's concern for animals. He, does, he is concerned for animals, but that was the economy, agrarian economy. I care about the economy. I don't just care about the people. I care about the economy as well. Friends, God radically cares. God cares about non-Christians. God cares about these cities. Why? Because he created people. And that's why he cares about them. And friends, we should care about what God cares about. Friends, if our churches explode, but the places that we live in tank, we should lament. If our economies fall, it shouldn't be, well, that's going to be great because then people can respond to the Lord. No. No, God cares about the cattle as well. God says to Jeremiah when he goes into Babylon, pray for the peace and prosperity of the city because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Care for all of life. Care for the location that you're in. Friends, what you're concerned about, what, what you're really caring about, caring about how long this message is going on for, caring about what time we're going to finish this afternoon, caring about your sporting team. What, do, what are you caring about? What are your concerns? Caring about the next upgrade that you can get. What are you concerned about? God is concerned. God is concerned about great cities. He's concerned about towns. He's concerned about 120,000 people who are your enemies that you want destroyed, but He cares about them. And He wants you to be caught up with Him. So firstly, the house. Secondly, the heartland. Finally, the home. Finally, the home. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's use. But blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in the court. Now, there is such a dramatic change from the focus on the temple in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem to family that some commentators say these two uh, sections were kind of weirdly put together. These are two separate psalms. They don't belong together. It's too much of a gear change. But I want to suggest to you that it's not. And in fact, if you look at Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, actually they are mirrors of each other. Psalm 127 starts in Jerusalem and ends in the family, but Psalm 128 starts in the family and ends in Jerusalem. They, they, they are mirrors. The, the, these uh, two sections belong together, and they belong together because both of them highlight things that are of first importance. In Psalm 127, we see three things that are mission critical, that are massive priorities, and that's why they belong together. And people who think this shouldn't belong together shows a disordered heart. They don't understand the full breadth of mission-critical things in the heart of God. There are just two things that I want to highlight in closing here. The first thing that I want you to see is that your family is a part of the package. Your family is a part of the package. Now, I understand there are singles amongst us, and if you're singles amongst us, you're actually not excluded from this point. You're not excluded from this point because you are part of the family of God. Secondly, you're not excluded from this point because you are called to raise spiritual sons and daughters and so this is relevant to you. This isn't just to people uh, who are married and have children. But the thing that I want you to notice here is that our family is a part of the package. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are a reward. Notice in uh, two of the verses, it clearly highlights that our offspring are from the Lord. 
I don't know about you, but if it's your birthday or Christmas and you, you've got a lot of gifts, like one of the big factors of your gift isn't just what the gift is, it's who it's from, right? There's certain people, like if you know, wow, this is from so-and-so, you kind of pay more attention to what that gift is. And God's just putting up his hand and say, hey guys, just like heads up, I'm giving a gift. It's Christmas time, I know there are lots of gifts going on, but I'm giving a gift as well, and my gift is children. It's from me. So it's super important. This is from me. Like you get in a whole lot of other stuff, cool, awesome, but this one's from me, and I want you to get a heads up. Firstly, it tells us that it's from him. Secondly, God communicates that this is our heritage, which means that if you're married and you've got children, the primary thing that you give to the world, the primary legacy that you give are your children. The thing, the thing that you leave behind, the thing that you bless the world with are your children. They are a heritage from the Lord. They are a heritage from the Lord. Now, I know for some of you with, with, with young kids, you're thinking, this, this doesn't feel like a gift from the Lord. This, this, doesn't, feel, this, this, this doesn't feel like something I want to hand over. And Kidna is beautiful here when he says, it is not untypical of God's gifts that first they are liabilities or at least responsibilities before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise... <laughs> The greater their promise, the more likely that these kids will be a handful before they are a quiverful. <laughs> the Von Rain family do children that are a handful, so I'm, 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 I'm trusting for a quiverful. <laughs> Friends, is this a priority for you? Does this matter to you? Do your kids really matter? Or if you have to ask your spouse and say, hey, what are my passions? I say, man, you are really passionate about the church. You are really passionate about your location. But you are shockingly indifferent about the family. You zone out when it comes to the family. I am the one that is having to disproportionately carry this because your psalm ends halfway through. Your psalm ends halfway through. Does this matter to you? Friends, you know what my, my lament is in interacting with some Christian leaders is I was brought up in a non-Christian home. My dad's not a believer. As far as I understand, he's still not a believer. But you know what? My dad was like off the charts. Every day, Every day growing up, my dad told me he loved me. He'd hug me, embrace me, tell me he loved me, give me a kiss, love you. Every weekend sport in a game, every one except one, in 12 years of school, every single game, my dad was at the side of the, the touchline. So he didn't just say, I love you, he was there. Every debate, he was there. Radically generous, provided for me in just stunning ways. And he's not a Christian. And the guys that are Christians, who know God the Father, who represent God the Father, stunning indifference. Stunning indifference. Friends, it's not good enough. It's really not. If we get that this is from, this is a gift from God. This is a gift from God. This is what we pass on to the next generation. We really need to ask God to help us do better. The final point here in the psalm, I'm, apologies for going a bit long. The final point in the psalm is we receive contrarian parenting advice. This psalm is stunning because the advice is so contrarian. If somebody gives you something incredibly precious, what is the obvious thing that you do? If you get something that is incredibly precious, you just keep it so close to yourself and you guard it at all cost. And friends, there's a lot of evangelical parenting counsel that just says, precious God, remove from any form of danger. And this psalm's trajectory is the complete opposite. It's precious to God, therefore precious to you, therefore train and equip so that it's an arrow so that you can shoot it out. 
prepare your kids for cultural engagement so that they can contend with your enemies at the gate. What's the gate? The gate is the, the, the place where culture is made. The city gate was the place of assembly for legal and business transactions. It was used for public meetings that affected all the city citizens, merchants, visitors, messengers, judge, all frequented that area. They conducted business there. It was the legal, commercial, political, cultural making center of the city. And God wants you to raise your kids to be able to handle the very center of culture making, that they would be able to contend, not attack, but contend for biblical truth right at the culture making center. This psalm calls parents not to guard and remove and to isolate, but to raise modern day Daniels and Esthers and Nehemiahs and Josephs who are able to lead and contend for Christian truth right in the public square. And right here in Maidenhead, we have one of the most fantastic examples of that. The Prime Minister of this nation, Theresa May, daughter of a vicar, who didn't hide her away, who didn't say, Theresa, be scared of the world, it's wicked and evil, don't engage with that at all. I honestly never thought that in my lifetime I would hear a prime minister of this nation to stand up and say, religious freedom surely means that Christians are free to talk about their faith in the context of their work. A prime minister saying, religious freedom must mean evangelism in the workplace. And friends, it's not just Theresa May, Angela Merkel, daughter of a vicar. What are we raising our kids for? We're raising our kids for isolation? Or are we raising our kids for cultural engagement? Are we raising our kids to be close to home? Or are we raising our kids to be arrows that will be shot out for God's global purposes to the very ends of the earth? Friends, there is incredible contrarian parenting advice in Psalm 127. And I want to call us as leaders to invest in our children, to dream for our children, to believe in our children, to be on mission for Jesus and culturally engaged for the good of our locales and for the glory of God. Let's stand together. Let's just come before the Lord. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for these gifts of the Psalms of Ascent that focus us and prepare us for celebration. And Lord, I want to ask you now in this moment that by your Holy Spirit that you would help each one of us just to do an internal audit of our lives. Lord, I pray that in your mercy and grace that you'd audit our work. Is our work by us and for us? Or is it by us, for you, when actually you want it by you, for you? And if you, in this place today where you're just honest that actually, Stephen, I'm in the by me, for God place, or worse yet, by me, for me, I just want to invite you lovingly and graciously to repent, to say, sorry, Lord. I'm really sorry that I am working independently of you. I'm not dependent on you. I don't believe that unless you work, nothing will happen. Unless the Lord builds the house, The laborers build in vain. I'm not believing that. I'm, I'm filled with unbelief and I want to say, sorry, Lord. And could you reorder me 
so that I wouldn't be driven and anxious and sleepless and ungodly. Could you reorder me, Lord, so that I can really put you first? I feel like for some, you've had to move to a place and you were initially excited about the place. You're not that excited anymore. And Lord, I just pray for people that are struggling to love the context that they're in. Lord, I pray that your heart for their location, your heart for their location, you tending and caring for it, would become their heart. Lord, I pray for us as parents. Lord, we just want to say sorry to you, Lord, if we haven't taken the gifts that you've given us seriously. If we've been passionate for the church and passionate for our town, but not passionate for our kids. Lord, we know that grieves you. It grieves you. And so we want to say sorry, Lord, and we want to ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I thank you that you say that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And I pray for parents that have had a wrong priority, have not prioritized their children. Lord, I want to pray that today, instead of just correcting their priorities, that you would give them dreams and visions for their children. That they would very quickly tap into what you want to develop in their children, what you want to call out of their children, what you want them to prepare for their children the location that you want to target them out to. Lord, I pray that it would be like not a gradual change, but all of a sudden they would find their hearts being gripped for their children. Just felt in just praying this morning that there's some parents of teenage children that one of the like applications of today is just to go home and to apologize to your children. for a lack of prioritization of them. And I really feel that God's going to own that apology in a way that's really going to help bring a relational warmness back. Lord, we bring our children to you. We bring our children. They belong to you. They're from you and they belong to you. And so we pray, Lord, that your plans and purposes would be done. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be charging every hill while our kids or be neglected and overlooked. I pray that as leaders we'd be balanced people. We would love your house. We would love the heartland. But we would love our children. We pray that you would help us with this. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.